0: Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. The International Finance Corporation was established in 1956 as the World Bank's private investment arm. Its membership consists of 184 states, and voting on its board of directors is stacked to account for the variance in state subscriptions. The United States holds the highest voting power with 20.99% of the vote, far greater than any other state. For comparison, Japan holds the second highest voting power at only 6.01%. IFC investments are therefore funded by all of us, and in particular, American taxpayers. So what does the IFC invest in? The IFC has the venerable mission to eradicate extreme poverty by 2030 and foster prosperity in low to middle income countries by investing in private companies that serve its noble mission. It is required by its own internal procedure to look at the environmental and social impact of all of its loans. Yet the IFC's track record has been ignoble, to say the least. In recent years, the IFC has escalated its investment and seems to have relaxed its diligence in reviewing the impact of its loans in a rush to get money out the door. In 2014, for instance, the IFC approved $22 billion in financing and earned $1.5 billion in profits. While its profits go back to fund World Bank initiatives, Its mission is not simply to make as much money for the World Bank as it can, but to only invest in loans that have a positive social and environmental impact. The rush to get money out the door has resulted in questionable loans for luxury hotels to billionaire tycoons and even a Saudi prince. The IFC has also directly funded projects that have had catastrophic social and environmental consequences and has provided funding to egregious human rights violators and thus enabled the human rights abuse. Two such cases are currently being litigated by Earth Rights International in the DC circuit. In Doe vs. IFC, Honduran farmers are suing the IFC for aiding and abetting the financing of a corporation that defrauded them out of their land, including by posing as tax collectors from the government, and unleashed a campaign of terror and assassination in order to retain this land, including being implicated in over 40 murders. In Jam vs. IFC, Indian fishermen are suing the IFC for the funding of a coal power plant in Gujarat that has polluted their water and air and fundamentally changed the traditional way of life by destroying the marine ecosystem where they used to fish. The IFC claims it has immunity from suit, but such a ruling would provide impunity to the IFC for there is no other remedial mechanism to keep it in compliance with its mission. The IFC's accountability arm, the Compliance Advisor Ombudsman, which sharply criticised the IFC's abject failure to comply with its own procedures in these two matters, has no enforcement ability and the IFC has appeared not to take heed of its criticism. Here with me today to discuss these issues and more is Marco Simons, the lead counsel in Doe vs IFC and JAM vs IFC. Marco is the General Counsel of EarthRights International and its Regional Program Director for the Americas. Good morning, Marco. Thank you so much for coming on Gravity.
1: Thank you, Alexandra. It is a pleasure to be here.
0: So on March 7, 2017, you filed a class action on behalf of two classes of Honduran farmers against the International Finance Corporation, a World Bank institution, and the International Finance Corporation Asset Management Company, its wholly owned subsidiary, for aiding and abetting the human rights violations, including kidnapping, terrorism, and murder of the farmers by a palm oil company did not. Before we get into the specific claims against the IFC and IFC AMC, may you please tell our audience about the context of the agrarian land disputes from the provision of fallow land in the 70s to the so-called modernisation in the 90s that encouraged and its nefarious and illegal practices that is at the crux of the conflict between the company and the farmers.
1: Sure. Uh, you know, without getting too much into the weeds, I mean, the, the origins of this um, conflict do go back to um, efforts in Honduras to provide a more equitable land system and policies that allowed groups of farmer collectives in order to gain title to land, essentially by... Uh, farming that land um, and they they were able to gain collective title uh, on behalf of these farmers cooperatives. Um, and this this lasted for for um, a, a fairly long period of time when when farmers groups obtained title to these lands collectively and were collectively farming them. Um, until essentially the the mid-1990s. And in that period, um, the uh, the Honduran government and the World Bank um, engaged in what was referred to as agricultural modernization. Um and one of the key aspects of this modernization law pushed by the World Bank was to, number one, reverse this um, this collectivization of, of farming um, and allow the sale of individual land parcels and the sale of collectively titled land. Which had previously been banned. Um, and what you know, in principle, obviously, if if a farmer's collective wanted to sell its land uh, to a buyer at a fair price, that wouldn't necessarily have been a problem. But the protection that this removed was against fraudulent and coercive transactions. And so because it was now legal for farmers' cooperatives to sell their land to uh, big companies, uh, major landowners, those sorts of buyers, um, these transactions proliferated and often were accompanied by fraud and coercion. Uh, And so all the buyer needed to do in order to gain possession of the land was to show documents that were sort of valid on their face, that looked like there was a valid sale of the property, even if what was going on uh, behind the scenes was, you know, uh, coercion by threats of force or fraudulent documentation and essentially uh, theft of land on a large scale. And, and this happened in a number of of places throughout Honduras, but including, in particular, the uh, Bajo Aguan Valley, which is uh, one particular uh, farming location, which is uh, particularly well suited to African oil palm, which is the source of palm oil, which is now a very lucrative commodity on the global market, and. Throughout this period, in the mid-to-late 1990s and early 2000s, lands owned by one particular Honduran magnate, uh, Miguel Facuse, um, were, you know, Facuse concentrated the largest land holdings um, of African oil palms over, in the in the Bajo Aguan, the over 22,000 acres. Um, now, this in itself also violated Honduran law because Honduran law still um, prohibits uh, too much concentration of land holdings in one person. And Falcusay used a variety of of sort of shell companies and such to get around. Uh, this law. Um, so that's that's the background here that there was this uh, land, this agrarian reform, collectivization effort that was then undone in large part uh, in the 1990s with the backing of the World Bank that allowed the concentration of land in large landowners, um, specifically Miguel Facuse, who. during this period, uh, put his palm oil plantation lands into uh, the Dinant Corporation, which was his uh, his corporation that he privately owned. Uh, So that's the background here as we get into the mid to late 2000s, um, when the violence really starts to ramp up.
0: Now, your 132-page complaint is very detailed about this long and systemic terrorization of Honduran farmers. May you please elaborate on what kind of human rights violations and, and basically the terrorization that we're talking about here?
1: Yeah. So um, the the farmers, when their lands were stolen, did not sit idly by. And they used a variety of, of means to try to reclaim their lands, um, including a combination of legal actions and peaceful occupations of uh, farmland that they believed was theirs. Um, and this led to a dramatic reaction from Dinant and others. And the farmers actually started winning some of their court cases. They, even the Honduran courts have recognized that some of these lands were taken. Uh, improperly. And uh, at the same time as, as this uh, conflict was starting to heat up, um, Honduras exploded. In June of 2009, uh, a military coup uh, toppled Honduras's government and led to an explosion of violence across the country, but especially in the Bajo aguán, which became one of The most violent places on earth, especially uh, for people who were trying, you know, for activists who were trying to defend their lands.
0: And and one of the lawyers was assassinated too, right? Um, That they had some farmers had a legal victory, and their attorney was assassinated in broad daylight.
1: That's that's true. Uh, Antonio Trejo, who who represented some of the farmers cooperatives and had won. Uh, legal victories was assassinated uh, in uh, September of 2012. Um, you know, there were other very high profile incidents of violence here. Now, Dinant and some others have claimed that the violence in the area is regrettable, but is the result of sort of violent conflict on both sides. Um, and in many cases, that is clearly not true. So, as one example, um, you know, which which we cite in our in our complaint, the the assassination of Gregorio Chavez, who was another uh, leader of these farmers cooperatives, um, he was abducted from his farm while he was tending his garden, uh, and local witnesses reported essentially a trail of blood and sort of flattened plants leading directly into Dinant's farm, which was adjacent to uh, Gregorio Chavez's own plot. Um, His body, after days of searching, his body was found in a shallow grave on Denon's plantation. Now, this was not the result of any, you know, conflict in which he was, you know, threatening Denon's security in any way. He was abducted as he was farming his land. Um, it, you know, in another case, a whole, a whole group of farmers um, in in November 2010. When they went out to farmland near another Dinant plantation, they were met essentially with uh, an attack by Dinant security guards shooting at them. And after they fled, the Dinant security guards were sort of followed up by a military unit, which we allege was called in by Dinant to um to chase after and shoot after more of these farmers none of which again were threatening anybody in any way they were out there you know the only the only things they had with them were were farm implements um and at least 5 people were shot and killed um and others were wounded during the the course of this attack um so the the violence here has has really been uh, horrific and it it stems from the DN corporation's desire to control the palm oil industry in Honduras and which is a very profitable industry for it. Um, and this is the context in which unfortunately, the World Bank Group gets involved in actually financing DINON.
0: So for our listeners that aren't conversant in the Bretton Woods Instruments and in the particulars of the IFC and the IFC AMC, may you please describe briefly their creation, structure, purpose, and their relation?
1: Sure. So the World Bank Group is a cluster of organizations formed in the sort of post-World War II economic order, which are all – um, multilateral, meaning they are formed by agreement among a number of different governments around the world, and they're they're governed by representatives of these governments, including the United States. And so, the World Bank Group com- specifically uh, includes five different entities. Two of which are sort of considered the World Bank proper, and that's what most people think of when they think of the World Bank is the part of the institution that loans money directly to uh, governments around the world, typically poor governments, uh, in order to facilitate development projects. The International Finance Corporation, or IFC, is another one of those institutions that's part of the World Bank group. And The IFC has a similar mission to the World Bank in terms of promoting development and alleviating poverty. Uh, and in fact, the IFC states that its essential it's mission is to do no harm to people in the environment while mm-hmm. you know, promoting development. And, but the, IFC, the way the IFC accomplishes that goal is by lending to and investing in private corporations So it has a similar mission, but a different mode of operating. And so the IFC also has um, a sort of captive investment vehicle known as IFC AMC, the IFC Asset Management Corporation, which nobody is really familiar with. Um, And IFC AMC is... Uh, Legally distinct from the IFC, it's a a separate corporation, but it is wholly owned by the IFC, Uh, and the IFC essentially uses it in part to raise additional capital. So there are uh, investors in IFC AMC who purchase its bonds and such, Um, and so that is also a vehicle through which the IFC engages in some of its lending and investing but but it but both of both these institutions are subject to the same management and oversight now the IFC because it is it's not supposed to simply be out there making money although it does make a good deal of money it is a very profitable institution it makes billions of dollars on the loans that it gives and but it's not simply supposed to be out there profiting because we have private banks to do that. Instead, the IFC is supposed to be fulfilling this anti-poverty and pro-development mission. And part of that is accomplished through a series of what are known as performance standards. And these cover a variety of environmental and social issues, including human rights, um, including uh, you know, security issues, um, but they're designed to ensure that the IFC does, uh, fulfill its stated goal of doing no harm, uh, to communities and the environment. Uh, and whenever the IFC makes a loan or an investment, uh, the, the borrower, uh, or the company in which it invests, which the IFC refers to as its client, uh, is required to follow these performance standards Um, and when they don't or when the ISC doesn't follow the performance standards in its operations, there is supposed to be a mechanism uh, that is supposed to address those breaches of the ISC's own policies.
0: And in this instance, it seems the IFC completely failed to follow its own policies. In fact, its own ombudsman excoriated the IFC for failing to implement its own policies. What did the IFC do? I mean, did didn't comply with filing any reports? Did the IFC do due diligence on the ground to see what was happening? What went on?
1: Uh, yeah, so the, they did, uh, you yeah, know, this... this issue did come to the IFC's Ombudsman office, which is their um, supposed accountability mechanism. And it's it's an office known as the CAO, the Compliance Advisor Ombudsman. Um, And there are very good people at the CAO doing very good work. The, The basic problem with the CAO is that it has no actual power. It can conduct investigations, and it can decide that the IFC has violated its own policies, and it can make recommendations. But the IFC doesn't have to follow anything the CAO says, and that's mostly what happened here. Unfortunately, the the CAO found egregious violations here. Um, in fact, they they started out their own investigation um, because they found that. Violence against farmers around DNOT plantations was occurring because of inappropriate use of security forces under DNOT's control or influence. Um, I mean, that was, you know, that's the CIO's own words here. They found that the ISC failed to follow its own policies, they, the ISC continued to allow DNOT to breach those policies. They failed to disclose information, failed to disclose, failed to consult with local communities, Um, you know, they continued to overlook all kinds of problems in the IFC's investments. Um, As just one example, you know, the IFC initially made its commitment to lend to d in early 2009. In June of 2009, the coup occurred in Honduras. Now, you might expect that that would cause the IFC to revisit the context in which it was making this loan. Um, The IFC hadn't actually given any money to d at that point. Instead, in November of 2009, the IFC went ahead and dispersed the first half of the loan to d Then the IFC decided... Okay, we're going we're going to freeze the rest of this direct loan to Denon and sort of made a show of uh, of ending their support for Denon. But what followed was essentially an end run around this because the ISC continued to provide tens of millions of dollars in support to Denon over the next several years um, through various different intermediaries including loans through that were essentially laundered through a Honduran bank which the IFC was supporting um, and directly guaranteeing that bank's loans to Dand so they continued to support DiON despite knowing the violence that was going on the conflicts over the land in fact DiON itself told the IFC, that there were disputes over uh, some of their plantations um, because the IFC was, was an investor uh, in d and so they were giving them information about these loans. The IFC had to waive some of its own requirements about, about the degree of exposure to one uh, Borrower, in order to allow these loans to continue, so not only did the ISC not stop lending to DNOT when this vi- course of violence became clear, they bent their own rules in order to continue these loans, and the CAO found that this—that it was essentially this support for for DNOT allowed allowed Denonut to greatly ramp up its operations and that it was Denonut's use of security that caused or contributed to much of this violence. In fact, the CAO found allegations of at least 40 deaths over several years that were linked to Denonut security forces.
0: So the Uh, money that was provided by the IFC not only allowed Dinant to profit from its human rights abuses, but actually to perpetuate their abuses by hiring sicarios, assassins, security personnel, paramilitary forces, and the weapons for them?
1: You know, that's what what we allege here. We don't know exactly what Dinant did with the dollars that the IFC gave it, but money is fungible. And what we do know is that after receiving these injections of cash, D-NUT greatly ramped up its operations, greatly expanded its both private security um, as well as its uh, contracts with, uh, with governmental security agencies. Um, and so this money certainly helped D not to engage in that expansion at the cost of the lives and livelihoods of many people in the Bajo Agua.
0: So if the IFC says that it had no knowledge of this, what leg do they have to stand on? Because not only were journalists writing whole books about this, for instance, but the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights in two separate instances excoriated the Honduran government and provided precautionary measures, as well as their own compliance office. So how did the IFC respond to its own compliance office telling them that they were completely inadequate in preventing this violence?
1: So their response has been, uh, I would say, minimal. The IFC did acknowledge that there was a serious problem in Honduras. Um but they have not taken the measures necessary to address that problem. So for example, one thing that the IFC has done was to push DNON to shift from uh, using armed private security to relying only on governmental security. This isn't necessarily an improvement because d now has uh, an agreement with um, military units, which are themselves implicated in serious human rights abuses. Uh, and so the fact that you know, d has swapped out its private security uniforms for military uniforms um, doesn't necessarily help the situation on the ground. The ISC also participated in this uh, sort of roadmap process uh, toward, was supposed to um, contribute to uh, peace and security and more secure land tenure in Honduras. Um, and this effort, unfortunately, has uh, has been, I think, fairly widely acknowledged to be a failure. Um, the roadmap process was not inclusive of the farming communities, and there has been very little uh, concrete um, progress coming out of this process. Um, and the, the CAO itself, the ISC's own you know ombudsman office, you know has done periodic reviews of how the ISC is responding to its findings, and they've basically determined that um, the ISC is failing to address the issues that it has outlined, um, and that the plan that the ISC developed, this action plan, Um, The CAO found that the affected communities don't really support this plan um, and that it it doesn't address the fundamental issues that uh, that the, the CAO and the communities have identified here. And in fact, the IFC has a whole lot more power that it's not using here. What we know from other cases is that in the contracts that the IFC writes with the companies that it funds, it includes that the company promises to abide by the IFC's performance standards, and the IFC has a right to enforce that. As far as we know, they have never done that, not just in this case, but anywhere. They have never tried to use the force of that contract to enforce the environmental and social commitments of the companies that they fund. Um, And so the fact that they have tried to persuade, um, you know, or move various constituencies toward uh, a sort of more peaceful Honduras, um, those may be positive efforts but they don't address the fundamental issues and they don't use the power that the IFC actually has. Um, and they have a lot of power here and they could easily compel action by d um, And uh, the IFC simply hasn't taken those steps.
0: What is your opinion as to why they're not taking these steps? Why are they turning a blind eye? Is it because they profit from this?
1: Well, that's a good question, um, and it does beg the question of the IFC's fundamental mission. You know, what the CIO found in its investigation, and they talked to lots of IFC staff members, uh, some of which said that there was essentially massive pressure within the IFC to get money out the door, that the IFC was making a lot of money off of its loans, and so the paramount consideration here was to shovel money out the door, increase the rate at which it was lending, um, and just approve project after project. And I think there is, you know, some concern on the part of the IFC that if they if they are uh, stronger. In their enforcement of environmental and social and human rights issues, that it will be harder for them to find projects to invest in, and there may be companies that don't want IFC money. Um, but and that that may well be the case. It may well be that uh, it's harder for the IFC to find projects if they are more vigilant about uh, these rules. But that's sort of the point. The whole purpose, the whole purpose of this organization, is to find good projects that are going to help people, that are going to help poor people, um, and promote sustainable development. It's not to just get money out the door, and it is hard work to find these projects, especially when you're dealing with projects promoted by private corporations. Um, so, yeah, it's it's difficult to do, um, but that doesn't mean the IFC should simply take the easy way out and water down its standards and its mission and its commitment uh, to protecting the environment and protecting communities in order to to shovel money out the door. I mean, one of our clients in in Honduras told us that you know the IFC says that. It's committed to ending poverty. Um, but what it's really doing here is ending the poor,
0: mm-hmm.
1: potentially. It's ending the lives of the poor. Um, yeah,
0: it's a powerful And, movement.
1: yeah, I mean, you know, and that, that farmer sort of gets it in a way that many of the IFC staff do not. It's not ending poverty to do this.
0: So when we're talking about the IFC's mission and its systemic failure to implement its mission and look for projects that will, would help the environment and society and eradicate poverty, I want to now discuss another project where the IFC is aiding and abetting both human rights abuses and environmental catastrophe that you're litigating uh, on behalf of Indian citizens and this is the development of the Tata Mudra plant in Gujarat and I believe that they were again excoriated internally by their ombudsman in the matter. May you please explain the facts of this?
1: Sure Uh, you know this is another sort of slow-moving tragedy that should not have happened Um, because in this case well, while in the D-naught case it was abundantly clear that the IFC really should have known uh what it was doing and what would happen if it gave more resources to denot in the the tatamundra power plant case um the isc did know and they actually identified almost all of the negative impacts that would happen from this power plant that they were that they were uh, considering funding, they produced reports that said you know if if the plant isn't essentially isn't done the right way, it's going to have all these you know terrible impacts on the local communities, uh, including you know impacts on air quality and uh, impacts on coal dust and and fly ash covering local crops. And especially some of the worst impacts are on the local fisheries because this power plant is right on the coast. The reason it's on the coast is because it needs to use seawater in order to cool the plant. So they take in seawater, run it through the plant to cool it down, and then discharge hot water back out into the sea. And the IFC essentially said, well, if you do that, you're going to have terrible impacts on fisheries. So what you should do instead is have a closed cooling system where the water just stays inside the plant and recirculates. Um, And initially, the developer of the power plant said, okay, we're going to implement all of these features. And then along the way, they backtracked. And they said, well, it's going to be too expensive to do this. It's going to be too expensive to do that. And the IFC did nothing. They approved all of the changes, uh, despite having identified all of the impacts that would occur. And those impacts have occurred. The local fisheries have been decimated. Um, The the local air quality has plummeted. Local farmers have their crops covered in, in coal dust and fly ash. Um, and the project hasn't even developed the, the delivered the promised benefits because you know people next to the plant were told you should support this project because you're going to get cheap power. Well, that cheap power is going first of all, it's not that cheap because um, the coal market has changed. Uh, but second of all, that power is going to other people, and people next to the plant are often still you know getting electricity from. You know, car batteries. Um, so, it, it's it's been a disaster for the local communities here, um, and in this case, while well, well in the Denon case, the IOC did a little bit to try to address uh, the problems identified by the CAO, in this case with the power plant, ISC has basically done nothing uh, to address the problems the CAO has has identified. Um, and it's, it's really a tragedy. And so this was the first case that we brought uh, to sue the ISC to bring them to court. Um, and I think this highlights one of the, the key legal issues around the ISC, which is the fact that they claim absolute immunity from suit in U.S. courts.
0: So last month you had oral argument for this case in the Tatamundra Planta gem versus the IFC the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, because the lower court did agree with the IFC that it was immune. Now, what is the IFC's argument that it's immune? Is it from the Organizational Immunities Act?
1: Yeah, it's so there's a a couple of points here, and I'll try not to get too far into the legal weeds. but there, there is a 1945 law known as the International Organization's Immunities Act. And all that law says is that international organizations like the IFC um, and the World Bank and a lot of other institutions get the same immunity in U.S. courts that foreign governments get. So if you can't sue a foreign government for Whatever it is, you can't sue an international organization. And the reasoning was international organizations are essentially groups of foreign governments getting together to do something together, so they should have the same immunity. Um, the problem here is that a foreign government would not actually get immunity for doing what the ISC has done. If you know China, for example, were to create uh, a corporation that was, whose purpose was to finance private corporations, to provide development finance, to head, headquartered that corporation in Washington D.C. where the IFC is headquartered, um, and engage in loans that, you know, intentionally or negligently caused harm to local communities. We could sue that Chinese-owned corporation. And the part of the reason we could sue them is because the immunities of, of foreign governments are, are now governed by a law known as the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Um, I talked with uh, Scott Gilmore about this a little bit um, in one of your previous episodes. Uh, and the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act governs how you can sue a foreign government But despite the fact that international organizations are supposed to get the same immunity that foreign governments do, the way the courts have interpreted this in some cases is to say, well, that means international organizations should get the same immunities that foreign governments got in 1945, not the same immunity that they get today, which means that international organizations actually get much greater immunity um, than foreign governments do, which makes very little sense because, again, international organizations are groups of foreign governments. But that's the way that some courts, anyway, have um, interpreted this law. And that's pr- that's the primary reason that the the district court here decided that the ISC was immune. Um, now, there are, there are a lot of other legal issues here because even if the IFC has immunity, the IFC can waive that immunity. It can decide, well, even if we're legally entitled to this, we're going to allow ourselves to be sued anyway. There are court decisions that say that the way the IFC's articles of agreement, their sort of founding agreement, the way that that's written um, it actually says the ISC can be sued, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. means the ISC the ISC can be sued. Um, but there are again conflicting court decisions here over over what that means.
0: But it seems courts are imputing; they're narrowing it because if you if you read what it says, it's very amethyst, it's very general. It seems they're narrowing it from a policy perspective.
1: Yes, the the first court decision to interpret this language that says the IFC can be sued said, that means what it says. It means the organization can be sued. Um, Then a later decision came along and said, well, I'm sure they didn't really mean that. So we will interpret this to mean they can be sued in a case where that suit would benefit the organization in the long run. And what they mean by that is if it would be difficult for the, for the organization to do business if, if they couldn't be sued. For example, if, if another person wouldn't trust them if they, if they didn't have any recourse to the courts, then we'll find that it's in their long-term interest. It's, it's to their benefit to allow them to be sued. So the classic example of this is, for example, if the IFC, you know, has a contract to buy office supplies from Staples, uh, that the courts are going to find that Staples can sue the IFC to enforce that contract. Because otherwise, um, they're not going to be able to buy office supplies in the future because no one will trust them if they just don't pay for their office supplies. So you have to allow them to be sued. Um, The problem with what the courts did in this case, though, or what what the district court did, is they found that a community trusting the IFC is essentially not as important as Staples trusting the IFC. Because The IFC says, according to its own policies, they can only go forward with a project like this power plant if they have community support for that project. So the same reasoning should apply, that no one will trust the IFC if they violate their commitments and they can't be held accountable. It's no different from buying office supplies from Staples. If you need a community to trust you. If you violate that trust and the community has no way to hold you accountable, no community is ever going to trust you in the future. So what the courts essentially said and what the IFC has said is we need to do business with staples more than we need communities to be able to trust us. That's a pretty sad statement about the way the IFC does business and what its priorities are.
0: Right. It's not meant to just be a bank to make profit. And it seems that the court is not looking at the communities as stakeholders of the project, but just people affected by the project, which is quite unfortunate, as you said. But possibly uh, another way to look at it is to look at the stakeholders of the IFC excluding the community, which I think is unfortunate, but let's do that. Okay, who are the stakeholders? If they're member states, well the member states are comprised of their people, their taxpayers. So if the taxpayers are providing money for a project that is meant to eradicate poverty and help the environment, but really their taxes are going to projects that do the exact opposite, well, then there would be no faith in that, and maybe member governments would pull out. That could be possibly another way to look at it.
1: I think that's an important point here that this shouldn't be lost that you know these projects are financed in part by US taxpayer dollars the US is the largest shareholder in the IFC so and the US you know the, right now in the current US political context the the need for these institutions the world bank group in particular is a subject of policy debate um, as to whether the U.S. should continue supporting these entities, um, and the IFC doesn't help itself when it engages in conduct like this. Um, but really, I mean, our our position is that um, allowing the IFC to be sued really helps its mission over the long term, because in these cases, if the IFC knew that it could be held legally accountable, it probably would have paid a whole lot more attention uh, to the impacts of these loans. And that would have resulted in a better outcome for the IFC's mission. So it's only if the IFC is systematically disregarding its own mission that the IFC even gets sued in the first place. So. The, the presence of or the possibility of a lawsuit to hold them accountable um, is really essential to keep the IFC focused on its mission, which is not to get money out the door, as, as the CAO found.
0: I think it's very unfortunate that it's always the floodgates argument. And I think in in one respect, that's treating the bench as if it were comprised of idiots. They won't know what to do. Everybody is going to be able to have a claim against us. But really what you're doing is providing an enforcement arm To the ombudsman's, the compliance office of the IFC, and in the two cases that you filed against the IFC, there's egregious human rights and environmental abuses that their own office has um, excoriated them. So, for anybody to say that you're um, hindering their mandate is preposterous.
1: Yeah, we're. I mean, we really view ourselves as as a necessary component to keeping the IFC. Sort of on task for its own mandate. Because right now, this is really a critical period in the IFC's history. The CAO is not very old. It, it was developed um, uh, about 20 years ago in order to address widespread concerns that were being raised by communities. And so um These are are some of the first cases to find serious violations by the IFC. And so what the IFC has been telling communities over the past couple decades is, essentially, if there is a problem, the CAO is available to help resolve that. Well, now, in the wake of these cases, communities now know that the CAO isn't going to help them. They're great people at the CAO. They do great work, but ultimately they can't force the IFC to do anything. So now you're dealing with a situation where if the IFC comes into a community to try to say, support this project, the community's response may very well be, why should we trust you? You don't have, you, you're not going to make any legally enforceable promises to us. You can't be sued in court you say we can take things to the CAO, but then you ignore the CAO's findings when they do come out, we have no reason to trust you. And the IFC might find it really difficult to convince communities to support their projects in the future. Whereas if they can be sued, then it's easy. The IFC comes in and says, look, if, if we do a terrible job, if we breach our promises, you know, you have a remedy, so you know you can trust us. Now, the, the the whole floodgates argument is is really maddening because you know the when we when we brought the case arising out of the Padamundra power plant in India, the IFC made this argument that oh, you know, if you allow us to be sued, you know, our whole mission will be threatened because there will be lots and lots of lawsuits. And our response to that is. There will only be lots and lots of lawsuits if you are systematically disregarding your own policies. Right. Um, and then then when when we sued them recently over the over the violence in the, the palm oil plantations in Honduras, they brought this to the court's attention and said, see, it's already happening. The floodgates are opening. And again, our response is, how many cases does the IFC have where it is where its own accountability mechanism its own ombudsman has implicated the IFC and its client in at least 40 killings i hope not very many i really do because if if there is you know if if, if there's a large number of cases like this one then the IFC really should be put out of business because they're not helping but i don't think that's true i have to believe that this is a small part of the ifc's lending i have to believe that on the whole you know they're doing a good job and that you know it's only a handful of cases that they need to be sort of pushed back from you know that that impulse to get money out the door without paying adequate attention to human rights and environmental impacts
0: for my last question, I want to talk about why it's important to sue them in national courts, assuming the IC can be sued. Okay, so we have the enforcement here that possibly they don't have in Honduras because of the, the violence that's happening there. And if we look at regional human rights instruments, they have an enforcement issue. If you could elaborate on these issues, please.
1: Sure. Sure. Um- it, you know, the U.S. shouldn't necessarily be the only place where the IFC is is sued. Um, in fact, it's not clear that the IFC is actually immune from suit um, everywhere that it operates because its own agreement does not require that. Um, so, but Honduras was an easy call for us. It just, I mean, given the fact that one of one of the allegations that we highlight in this complaint was the murder of a lawyer who was working on these land cases in Honduras. Um, There was no way this case could have been litigated in Honduras. Uh, It just that it would not have been safe for any parties involved. It's still dangerous. I mean, all of our all of our plaintiffs in this case are proceeding as John Doe's um, as, you know, under a pseudonym here because it's still incredibly dangerous for them. Um, But it would have been even worse to try to litigate this in Honduran courts. Um, With respect to India, the ISC actually made an argument that we should be litigating this case in India and not in the United States. Um, But the weird thing about that argument is usually when defendants make this argument. And we get this argument a lot in our cases because you know what we do at, at Earth Rights International, a lot of our work is suing U.S. corporations for human rights and environmental abuses that occur in other parts of the world. And it's pretty common for them to argue that these lawsuits should be brought in the other country. Uh, it's, an, it's a legal doctrine known as forum non-convenience. Um, but usually when a company or a defendant makes this argument, they accept that they can actually be sued in the foreign country because that's kind of the prerequisite to making this argument. The ISC didn't do that. They didn't say, you can sue us in India. They didn't say, we will waive any immunity that we have in India. Um, And in fact, after we brought our suit, the Indian government... um, issued a new sort of legal directive saying that the IFC is immune from suit in India. (laughs) So uh, why do we sue them in the United States? Well, they haven't given us any other good options. You know, look, if, if the courts are competent in the country where these abuses occur, if there's lawyers willing to bring these cases, if it's safe to proceed there, you know, we are all for, resolving these disputes locally. But look, the IFC is headquartered a few blocks from my office here in Washington, D.C. It is not inappropriate for U.S. courts here in D.C. to assess and rule on the conduct of the IFC. It benefits tremendously from being headquartered here in D.C. So just like any other You know, entity that's headquartered in the United States and operates in other parts of the the world, um, it can be held accountable in the courts of the United States,
0: and it should be held accountable. And I, I hope it is, and I hope that you're successful in both of these cases.
1: Well, thank you very much. We we hope so too. And but you know, if nothing else, we hope that we shine a light on the gaps in accountability for the IFC and, and similar institutions, uh, because, you know, if, in this case, in both of these cases, if, if immunity is upheld, it really does mean that uh, the, there is no, you know, the IFC has total impunity for really egregious violations of human rights, and, and there is no ability for communities affected by its projects to hold it accountable for its promises. And uh, and that would be a real shame and not at all uh, in keeping with the IFC's mission of promoting development and ending poverty.
0: I agree, and I, I don't think any international organization, including the UN, should be able to uh, conduct its projects with impunity, and it, it goes against their mandates. So this case only enforces the mandate of the IFC. And I wish you all the best with this case, as well as the case against the Tata Mudra plant in India. Its impact has been quite horrific.
1: Well, thank you, Alexander. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.
0: I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home. And around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.